Welcome to the Future of Australia podcast, where your host, Derek Stewart, interviews the entrepreneurs and founders running the 100 fastest growing new businesses in Australia. On episode 43, I interview Cameron Falloon, the founder and joint CEO of BodyFit Training. We discuss how as a first-year carpentry apprentice, he knew he wanted to be the one owning and running the entire business, not working for someone else. A back injury at 18 ended his sporting ambitions, but brought him on a journey of learning and self-rehabilitation through exercise. How he became a personal trainer with clients like Princess Diana to running his own fitness business and eventually taking it to 300-plus franchisees within four years and having 150 more franchisees ready to open within the next 12 months. If you're looking to join the hottest new global fitness community as a member or as a franchisee, check out bodyfittraining.com. That's B-O-D-Y-F-I-T-T-R-A-I-N-I-N-G.com. So I'm here with Cameron Falloon, the founder and joint CEO of BodyFit Training. Welcome to the podcast, Cameron. Thank you. I appreciate you having me. Yeah, that's all right. So can you tell us what were you doing before you started BodyFit Training? What did you study? What type of roles or companies were you working in? Yeah, um, look, I've had a, a, a very storied career, to be honest. I actually started as a carpentry apprentice. Um, I did an apprenticeship. I had a pretty, pretty significant back injury as an 18-year-old, and that's really what gave me I guess the start in the industry, I was um, fairly debilitated, had to learn a lot about my body, had to rehabilitate myself. I was, I was told that I would never be physically active again, find a desk job. And at 18, that seemed like my, my life was over. So that led, that led me to exploring a path with pursuing every healthcare practitioner I could find <laughs> to try and rehabilitate myself. And, and, you know, we're talking about 1990, 1991. Mm-hmm. So physiotherapy, wasn't anything like it is today back then. And that led me to study. So I initially did a 12-month course of anatomy and physiology at Monash University, just as a, a part-time course to get a basic understanding. That then led me to do a, a really basic certification as a fitness instructor. And again, it was more for my own purposes and, mm-hmm. and learning how to actually look after myself. And what, what it sparked me was that I was in a predicament where as an 18-year-old, I was, I was absolutely being told by medical professionals, look, you, you won't be physically active going forward and playing sports and so on. And I thought, I wonder, I've, I've been able to rehabilitate myself with a basic amount of knowledge. There must be a lot of other people in my position that aren't getting the advice that they need or they're not accessing training or rehabilitation services that could potentially help them like exercises really helped me. Mm-hmm. And so what that led to was I, I started university at RMIT doing what's called human movement. I actually left that course midway through my first year and I deferred it and went on to do myotherapy. thought myotherapy would give me, I preferred being hands-on. So utilizing massage techniques and dry needling techniques and, and taping, et cetera, to help people with various ailments. That eventually, years later, led me to doing a master's degree in sports science, strength and conditioning. And um, through that time, I... I worked in you know general population gyms doing as a spin instructor, as a group exercise instructor, as a personal trainer, working with physios doing rehabilitation, predominantly um, people with back pain and spinal rehabilitation, and then that eventually led me to doing um, working with athletes, so junior athletes with Derby County in the English Premier League, and then back in Australia with with soccer in Australia, and then eventually the AFL in Australia. So 
I've been very fortunate, but each of those roles was just a stepping stone and learning along the way, really. I never had a dedicated path that I thought I'd go down other than that initial impetus that I thought exercise was a really powerful thing for me. And if I could bring that to as many people as I possibly can, that was the ultimate goal. I didn't really have a setting that I thought that I could do that in. It was just if I could help people through exercise, that was potentially the path that I was going going to go on. And and that's what's led me to body fit training. And you know, at the moment, we've got 35,000 members that frequent our franchises around the world at the moment, on average, just under five times a week. And we're hoping that we can get that to hundreds of thousands of people in the coming years. Yeah. And so just going back to your teenage years, were you athletic as a kid? Did you like carpentry or you just you weren't sure what to do? How did that sort of pathway into carpentry initially sort of get started? Um, it's, it's a good question. Uh, to be, my brother was a carpenter. My older brother is three years older than me. Mm-hmm. We were both very active. I, I was into every sport that I could possibly play. I was reasonably talented at Australian rules football and played in a lot of development and, and regional squads. I was quite good academically, but I, I actually was bored at school, to mm. be honest. And um, and I really didn't know any better, to be to be really frank. I was just bored and just thought, you know, my brother has his life where he, he works, he gets paid. He's he, he, after school, after work, he can go surfing. On the weekend, he can go surfing or he can do what he <laughs> likes. He's, and as a young kind of 16-year-old, I, I really didn't know any better, to be quite frank. I didn't have any people around me that were advising me otherwise, um, despite the fact that I was quite good academically and my parents are quite conservative, to be, to be really honest. And, and when you say conservative, were they in the corporate world? Were they in the trades? Like, or No, were- my, dad, my dad, dad was a police officer. He was a, a finger, what, back then what was called a fingerprint expert. Mm-hmm. My mum worked as a, as a tea lady in a, in a corporate office, basically mm-hmm. serving people tea at their offices and at their desks. So my upbringing was, was very humble. You know, mum and dad would just get a steady job work your 40 hours a week and, you know, be happy that and, and grateful that you've got a job. So, yeah, the, the carpentry thing, to be honest, six months in, I what I started to learn a lot about myself. I realised that it wasn't for me, mm. but I'm not a quitter and I didn't want to give it away. So I thought, you know what, I've made a commitment. I'm going to see it through. And which part didn't gel with you or what what didn't you like? I wasn't very skilled as a carpenter, <laughs> to be honest. I was okay. I, I just I just didn't think. It wasn't one specific thing. Mm. You know, my brother, my brother, for example, loved it. He's very skilled. He's very mm. passionate about it. I, in my first year of my apprenticeship, was already thinking about how could I run a construction company? Mm. And so the carpentry apprenticeship, the journey for me became less exciting because I already was thinking, I actually want to be the guy running the business. Mm. And I, I actually was having discussions with my brother who was just finishing his fourth year of his apprenticeship and I was just starting saying, hey, you know, one day I'll run the business and, you know, you, you'll run the side, you'll be the foreman and I'll run the business and and, I'll, and so on. So I think I've always had that drive and that entrepreneurial spirit. I just didn't actually realize it at the time. And I guess, you know, the, the mistakes you make across your life and the lessons you learn got me to a point where I went, you know what, I, I don't want to work for anyone anymore. I've, I've, I want to do it do it myself and I'm happy to fall on my sword. And did anyone nurture that? Like you said, your brother was in the trades, your parents were in sort of, like you said, pretty sort of stable nine to five jobs. Was it a teacher, a relative who was entrepreneurial or did everyone think you were just a crazy 18-year-old who didn't want to do the hard work and wanted to run the show before you'd even finished your, uh, your apprenticeship? <laughs> a lot of people thought I was crazy at 18. Um, I had probably two moments. I was really fortunate. I, I spent three years working in, in the UK, in London, mm-hmm. 
And I originally went over to do the typical Australian thing, you know, spend three months in London, work in a pub and then try and, you know, backpack on a really tight budget through Europe. I ended up working there for three years and set up my own personal training business and was quite successful. And to give you some context, we're talking about 1995. I was working in a pub for three pound, five pence an hour for about six months. And then, you know, a week later, I was doing personal training for 30 pounds an hour, which at the time, the British pound was about 3.5 times the Australian dollar. So when you put that in context, that's about $110 an hour in 1995. So that really opened my eyes up. And what what London did for me was, you know, this I'd come from a you know a conservative family in the outer eastern suburbs of Melbourne to this big metropolis and a real you know the first big international city I'd really spent any any time of significance in. And all I saw was opportunity that if you worked hard and you had you had good values, you're a good person, you had good ethics, but more than anything, if you wanted to work. There was always opportunity in London, and that that really opened my. That was the first thing that really opened my eyes up to. There's a there's a whole world outside of Melbourne that I just I need to explore now. So that was probably the first thing. And then when I, I came back from London after three years, I quickly learned that I I swore I'd never go back to London because I actually worked so hard that <laughs> my last twelve my last twelve months I didn't actually really enjoy that much. And I went, oh, that's, that's it. I'm never going back. And I got back, started doing uni, and. Um, Within the first twelve months, I was like, I think I, I think I really want to go back to London. Mm. I felt that my friendship groups, all this, you know, I'm still friends with most of those people. They're great people, but no one had really moved on in their life. They were still going to the same pubs, mm-hmm. doing the same things on weekends. I guess living in the same neighbourhoods, and there's nothing wrong with that. Mm. But for me, it was like, wow, I've come back after three years and nothing's changed. Mm. And I just felt, I just felt like the conversations for me had evolved, but not much had changed at home and I, I actually really struggled and that might sound a little bit, uh, I don't know, elitist or, or other, but it was just the opportunity that London gave me to, to open up my eyes, explore broader horizons and I actually remember speaking with a really close mate and he said, yeah, I was a mature age student going back to <laughs> university and, um, and he said, oh, I'm so sick of my job, you know, he was an ex-professional athlete, he said, I'm stuck doing insurance work and blah, blah, blah. I said, mate, what do you want to do? And he, I can't, I actually can't remember the, the industry that he was really passionate about, but I said, I go to uni, like in three or four years time, it'll be done. And he never did it. And to this day, he's still in that insurance job. Mm. For me, that conversation, I remember that conversation distinctly. And I thought, I can't fall into that. It's really easy to fall into that. And I don't know. And there's nothing wrong with that, by the mm. way, mm. he's happy and he's married and all the rest of it. But I know I didn't want to be the person that when I got to 50 or 60 or 70, that was, I should have, or I could have, that was a, that was the decision for me, yeah. And I imagine there was quite a difference between the maturity of the fitness industry in the mid nineties in Melbourne versus London. Was part of that as well? Seeing like was it a lot more advanced? People were more open to personal training gyms, or was there not that much difference? How both the industry was sort of expanding and people were getting used to you know the fitness world, which wasn't as mainstream back then as it is now. Or, or what was that difference like between the two geographies? Yeah, ab- absolutely. It was absolutely far more advanced in the UK to give you an idea within about three months of me deciding to, to do personal training I had, a, I had a full book six days mm. a week and, and as I said anyone paying between 30 to 35 pounds an hour and you know roughly 95 to 98 there may have been three prominent well-known personal training studios in Melbourne there just wasn't mm. a lot I think there was two rack personal training there was Craig Harper I think and maybe one or two others but there wasn't a lot, and when I came back, it was it was kind of interesting because 
it was very new after three years of being in the UK and having a really strong business coming back to Australia. It was very new. And But again, I think what London taught me was, well, there's the opportunity, right? Mm. Um, rather than saying that the, the industry doesn't exist, it's all well, actually we've got a blank canvas. And mm. I guess the second, one of the lessons I learned was coming back to uni, I didn't have a full-time capacity and personal training, which is a great job, but you're trading, you're trading time for money. You, you've mm. only got a certain amount of hours and you're charging an hourly rate. And so I learned pretty quickly when I went back to uni that far out, I can only do a certain amount of hours. How can I earn more money, but not continue to grind myself into the, into the ground because I had to study and I wanted to make sure I got good grades and I, I was learning, I could professionally develop. So I started running back in 2000, eight-week challenges, which you see now are, mm. are all the rage across many brands. <laughs> so I was, doing that in, I was doing that in 2000, 2001 and employed a, as a consultant, a sports dietitian to do all the, all the meal plans. Mm-hmm put an eight-week package together and what I found was that I was getting overwhelmed with inquiries and people wanting to do it. And so when I was doing my university through, I think it was my end of the first year and definitely through my second year, I started employing trainers to work in the business with me. And that's when I sort of started going, you know, this is this is what I want to be doing, if employing people but help them to develop professionally. They're earning money. I'm getting a little bit of a quit of the ticket. We're all winning. That was, you know, I guess the next bit of the evolution of that entrepreneurial side that went, okay, I can do this, and in my third year of uni, I was earning over a hundred thousand dollars a year as a as a as a uni student. And you were just renting yeah. a gym space, like oh, from the uni, their, their sort of strength and conditioning facility. But then you've kind of you got these sort of trainers under you. Is that right? Or you yeah. had your own facility, or, or how how did that all work? No, we're at a big gym, a gym called Recreation Health Club I'm on Chapel Street in South Yarra, and I used to pay rent. So I'd pay I'd pay the rent for the trainers. You know, I'd pay all their outgoings and phone bills and marketing costs and so on and so forth. And, and my responsibility was to, to, I guess, develop the business and drive the leads and make sure that they were busy. And and that was just a much better use of my time mm. rather than me actually being in the gym one on one for an hour at a time. I still did do personal training, but whilst I was doing my hour, I could have two or three other trainers also working that same hour. And that was a bit of a light bulb moment for me. And in the, the early 90s and mid-90s to say, right, sorry, early 2000s, I apologize, early 2000s, to say, okay, again, here's another opportunity and just solidify that I thought that, yep, I do want to work for myself. I do want to try and create businesses. Still wasn't 100% sure exactly how I was going to do it or <laughs> exactly what the model was. I just knew that I liked that flavor and that what I liked was there's no excuses. If things go bad, it's on me. Mm-hmm. If something falls over, it's on me. And if things go good, it's on me. And, and I, I like that accountability and responsibility versus, you know, being able to hide potentially in a corporate environment or working for the man and, you know, it's a nine-to-five job and you, you're just not as invested. I'm an all-in type of person. So that really resonated with me sort of in the, in the early, mid-2000s that, again, has led me to where I am today. And it's sort of the dream you had at 18, right? You didn't want to be a carpenter. You wanted to be the one getting the job and having you know, carpenters and trades that are under you. So even though you found it in the fitness industry versus the, the trades construction space, but that was the vision, right? Like you said, to have a team and, and a business and be responsible. So you, you were able to achieve the, the dream you had as a teenager, but just in a, in a different sort of industry. And then so talk to me about how that became body fit training. Was it the same brand that evolved from one location and then was it the franchise? And that's when you sort of had the light bulb. Was it again a private studio? You had your own space, or well, how was that evolution during the two thousands from having a team, realizing you didn't just want to be a, a self-employed trainer, to having essentially a, a brand and a franchise sort of model? What what was that sort of uh, the starting point of that? 
so I got to a point, as I said, I never really had a plan. Just things kept evolving. And, 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 and I re- honestly, one, one thing I'd say to people out there is find someone as a mentor or multiple people as mentors. I, I never had it at a young age. And that I just didn't have the direction and the know-how. And I would have really, it would have been really beneficial to me to, to lean on some people, mm. some people experienced in industry or even other industries. I got to a point where I was doing this work. I had these trainers working for me. And then as you get a little bit bigger, like all businesses, you get, you get headaches with it as well. Mm. Um, it's not all, it's not all uh, <laughs> roses and sunshine. Mm. And I didn't know how to take the business to the next level. And, mm. and, that's, and it was really, really grinding me. Enough. And I got to a point where I thought, maybe this is not for me. And I was doing a little bit of consulting in, in the sporting space in soccer and having some success. And, and I actually started to really enjoy that side of it mm-hmm. utilizing my, my skills in fitness to develop athletes and and see them develop and have success was becoming something that i was really enjoying i was doing less one-on-one because i had other people doing it for me and it got to a point where i got offered a position in an afl football club and i thought you know what i think strangely enough and going back to working for the man which is working <laughs> for a football club i thought well I can take away all the stress here. I'm not really sure if I know how to go to the next level and I'm going to get a regular paycheck every week. It's doing something that I love doing, which is you know working in, in strength and conditioning, helping people to, to be better. And that's actually how I got into the AFL. And, and where did the business peak? Did you have five trainers, 10 trainers, one location? Two, where did that sort of bottleneck and no, like you said, a ceiling where you couldn't break through? What was that sort of scale? I had three or four trainers working for me and I actually, mm-hmm. had, I actually re-injured my back and... I was out of action for a couple of months where I actually couldn't be in the gym and work. Mm-hmm. One of the trainers actually tried to steal all my clients and start their own business. <laughs> and again, that's 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 just you know that's part of the course. Yeah, um, yeah. one of the cha- one of the challenges of business. And and I, I worked my way through that and, and resolved that issue and, and overcame some of those challenges. And, and that's when it started to become hard work. I thought, gee, maybe I can't get away from this because I've just I've, I've stepped away because of a forced absence with injury and mm-hmm. someone's trying to take advantage of that and again through naivety it just put a bit of a sour taste in my mouth and and it was just that opportunistic time where i got offered a job in the afl and i thought you know what, i can get rid of all these headaches mm. and just and just go and do work do strength and conditioning which is an awesome job and pays well etc so again not a lot of strategy or, or forethought in terms of the next move mm-hmm. but what that did going to the, the point of your question what that did after several years was again, solidified to me that I didn't want to be, I guess, in that system where I was always answerable to someone else. Mm-hmm. I, had, I had a CEO at one stage, you know, start, start actually trying to tell me how to do my job and, and he had no insight of the data of the athletes and what they, actually their performance outcomes and how they develop physically over the years. And I thought, you know what, this isn't actually about me. It's about it's about the business, right? The mm. business is failing. The business is falling over. And, and at some stage, because we all work on contracts, the people at the top of the tree tend to tend to be the first to go. So they sack two coaches, and I was next in line. So <laughs> you know that absolutely was a bit of a dagger in the in the in the heart because you work so hard, and, and mm. I did work hard, and I really love what I did. But I got out of it and went, you know what? One, I need to spend some time with my young children. I've, mm-hmm. I've, I've mm-hmm. missed out on too much of that time, and that gave me the opportunity to think about. How can I use my skills to build a business that hopefully will allow me to spend more time with my family because they've made a lot of sacrifices to follow my career, mm-hmm. but also fulfill that need to you know to grow something to get it to to what I want to to get health and fitness into as many people's hands as I possibly can, and that's how Body Fit Training started. I, I left AFL, absolutely had a bit of a sour taste in my mouth, um, whilst I had an awesome time when I was in the system, 
I actually took a year off and in that year I started a 24-hour gym because I couldn't sit still. <laughs> I built that up and put, put procedures and management in place to, for that to you know, somewhat run itself and again became bored and went, okay, how do I use my skills? And, and I just saw an opportunity in the marketplace with group fitness training that I thought, okay, that's right in my sweet spot. That's exactly where my skill set lies and I couldn't find anyone in the industry globally after doing a lot of research that was doing anything that I thought I could do and that I could bring. And that's how it started. I thought, you know what? I've got to put my money where my mouth is. I was very fortunate. I had a, a very close family friend, a guy named Des Morgan. He uh, was the chairman and, and started a franchise business of sports stores in Australia called Sportsco, which mm-hmm. many years ago was the largest Australian franchise. He'd successfully built that and sold it. And I wasn't sure that franchising was my thing. It, it was just something that I was thinking about because I knew that that would help Helped me to scale and be able to get it to more people. And it also provided really passionate people in the industry the opportunity to have their own business. And at the time, the average lifespan of a personal trainer was nine months. Mm. So for me, I was like, there's a problem in our industry. There's, there's a real problem. There's all these passionate people getting qualified, but there's no vehicle for them to have a career or to own a business. And so I thought, well, I've got the skills and, and, and the education over spending, you know, on and off nine years at university and I've learned a lot of life lessons through through sport and running my own businesses and made a lot of mistakes. How about if I could create a model that what I felt fitted a niche in the market that I thought was missing, but also through franchising, if we can provide systems and processes and support and we can provide that vehicle for passionate people to be able to have their own business that may not have otherwise had the opportunity, then for me, I was ticking two really big boxes. So I went and met with Des Morgan and he gave me some fantastic advice and the best bit of advice he said is you need to put your money where your mouth is. You need to get into a, you know, your first few franchises. You need to make the mistakes. You need, to, you need to learn every little bit about this business and you need to be able to look at franchisees and the people who are going to invest in your business in the future and say, well, you know what? I, I spent my money and I, I have my own franchises and I've made the mistakes, but we've learned from that and we've now got a system that's robust. We've got a great financial model. We've got great support, supplies, et cetera. And make it as turnkey as you possibly can, but don't rush it. And how long was it? So you have your first facility. You've left the, the sort of AFL corporate strength and conditioning world. Like, so you kind of got this 24-hour gym working. You're keen on the franchising. From then to having your first franchisee sort of signed up, or did you sort of run a second location yourself to, to stress test it, or, or how long until you had your first sort of franchisee on board? In, in 2016, we opened the first. I opened the first site. I um, opened four sites to as test test mm-hmm. studios pilot studios i got some ex afl players who i was very close with who their careers were finishing and they were interested in fitness and so what i said to them was look i've got this concept i trust you you trust me i'm going to put the money in i'll, I'll get them up and running if you want to you guys be the managers i'll help you, i'll teach you how to sell etc cetera, etc cetera. Mm-hmm. and if in 12 months time the business is doing well and we're, we're actually making some money and if you want you have the business, pay me back. You pay me back what I put in interest-free. I'm going to take that money and I'm going to grow the business and I'm going to build, I'm going to build it out so that you benefit from the investment that you've made and, and, for, and as a thank you for trusting in me. And, and that's how it panned out. So through 2016, we opened two studios. 2017, we opened a further two studios, made a hell of a lot of mistakes, learned a hell of a lot of lessons, spent a lot of money. And then in late 2017, I'd, I'd been speaking to Des and getting some advice of him I got a franchising lawyer, started to work on 
the franchise disclosure documents and our franchise agreements and our operations manuals. And right at that point in time, again, I got to that stage. Where I was like, I've got to take the business to the next level, but it's really difficult because I'm wearing the marketing hat, the legal mm. hat, the finance hat, the technology hat, the programming hat, the education hat. And so I was very fortunate. I got introduced to um, my now current business partners, Richard and Hamish. And Richard worked in the business full time with me. Hamish is a silent investor. And what became apparent was Richard was on a similar journey where he'd taken 12 months out of his corporate life to pursue and try and utilize his skills over 20 odd years in the corporate world to find a business or develop a business that, similar to me, he could grow with someone or on his own, but also eventually get to a stage where you know he was able to spend more time with family because it was you know corporate corporate world that he was in has some significant demands. So Rich and I basically speed dated for a couple of weeks, to be <laughs> quite honest, and, and and really got to know each other. And what was apparent was that we had really complementary skill sets. He comes from a very strong sales marketing brand background. He'd been involved in franchising in America with BP and Castrol brands. I was like, perfect. He's got a complementary skill set to me. We can kind of run, you know, really various verticals in a business independently, but but still be aligned in terms of the the final outcome. So we went to work in late 2017. We we did a rebrand from the original company, which was Jimmy Squats. We turned it into Body Fit Training, something mm-hmm. a bit more generic and a bit more obvious to, to the consumer. And we spent seven months. The original franchise agreements I had, we just pulled it all apart. You know, we had a fresh set of eyes with Richard, which was fantastic to be able to pull it apart and challenge a few things. We put it back together and in 2018, we officially launched BodyFit Training to the marketplace in April of 2018 and started selling franchises. And in that first year, obviously, there were some things you did right, some things you did wrong. What are some of those lessons on what worked and what didn't work in that sort of first year before you even had those sort of business partners and it's just you trying to franchise it? Yeah, I, I don't know whether it was so much what we did wrong. Like, there's a lot of things that you do wrong, but I think that's part of that's part of the journey to learn. Mm. You never you're never going to get the model perfect until you put it in the real world. Mm. I mean, the very first year, what I learned very quickly was the space wasn't big enough, mm. and so I'd done a little bit of financial modelling and forecasting, and and then when the real world sets in <laughs> and the real costs add up and and so on, it was like, okay, well, we can fit. As an example, 28 people in, in the first studio with a packed class, we, we actually need 36. Mm. So we learned that the model was going to be financially viable and a really good, strong, give us really good, strong AUVs for if we had 36 people in, in each class as an average. Mm-hmm. So therefore, we needed bigger space. And then we just learned, okay, some of our programming is becoming a little bit vanilla, so we need to change the equipment mix. Mm-hmm. And then we're just building out technology and you're using things like heart rate. So, you know, what I learned was I, I needed to have support staff who were really awesome in being able to educate and train people in how to sell. Mm-hmm. I could do it, but again, I was, I was wearing too many hats and I'm trying to build out technology and do programming and education and sales and legal, et cetera. Um, what we have now is some really good, really great franchise managers have great sales backgrounds and they now educate the franchisees and their, their managers that the importance of selling a heart rate monitor for the member experience Mm -hmm. and not just the member experience, but it's another revenue stream. So those little things we missed on the early days. Mm -hmm. And so that that took a while to turn because new franchisees come on board and they see the original franchisees and licensees and say, well, they don't sell many heart rate monitors. They don't talk about it in their classes and refer to it. And that became a bit of a culture. So it was just some, some support things. I'll probably... 
I really didn't, I wanted to self-fund it. I didn't want to dilute. I didn't want to borrow money. And mm. that was potentially a mistake early days. I, I could have gone and borrowed money. Mm. And again, something I could have got advice on and, and maybe sought better counsel on early days. I just wanted to do it all myself. And that's one of the real lessons I think as an entrepreneur, sometimes you've got to learn is like get out of your own way. Mm. allow other people to come in. And if you're going to allow them to come into business, you know, like, like Richard coming on as a business partner, you, you have to allow them to have their input, drive their passion, drive their knowledge, drive change and not be too, um, you know, it's hard as a founder because it's your baby and you don't want things to change. You want things to be how you, how you want them to be. But if that's the case, don't take on business partners who are going to come in with a different lens. You need to allow them to, to run with things and trust them and trust mm-hmm. that they're going to make decisions that sometimes you won't like, but, if you don't allow them to run with it, you potentially you won't bear the fruit of it. But you also might not make, make the mistake that's going to be have critical learning for you, changing your business and drive it forward. So we we have a really good relationship. We back it, we back each other in that we do the research. We don't make decisions on a whim. We we make very sound, educated, robust decisions based off re- research. Talking to franchisees, looking at global best practice, but also a lot of gut feel. But we also keep each other very accountable, and that's that's really important. Yeah, and so you really nailed the model. You grew 75% last financial year, increasing annual revenue to nearly $12 million a year, becoming one of you know the fastest growing new businesses in Australia. So did that once you had the, the business partners, did that all kind of click or were there extra things you did in, in recent years that really allowed that sort of rapid scale and roll out of um, you know new franchisees, new geographies, new sort of um, expansion? Yeah, we, we were really fortunate. The first four studios really did set us up. The, the, the ability for us to sell franchisees, sorry, sell franchises and look look franchisees in the eyes and say, well, I've put my money down. I, you know, I have been where you've been. That's really powerful and, and it's the truth. So we, you know, I'd invested in those four, first four studios. I'd been on the floor. I'd been teaching. I was laying rubber flooring and painting walls and <laughs> doing all the things that, to be honest, we advise our franchisees not to do now because they <laughs> should be selling They should be selling memberships. And so Richard did a fantastic job hitting the ground running and, and using that information and leveraging that to be able to get our early investors. And what we have a real philosophy of fairness. There's real three, three key pillars to our business that we, we won't compromise on and that's that's our members our franchisees and then us as a franchisor and if all three parties aren't winning then no one wins like everything falls down so we carry that into our franchise agreements the fairness philosophy how we interact with our franchisees the feedback that we take off them and, and then obviously the things that we implement in the business what's an example of something that you know maybe it wasn't in alignment and you thought no let's not do that or you, you think something's a good idea and then you hear from the, the members or the franchisees it's not and you have to sort of roll back or, or what was an example of, of when there wasn't an alignment you have to sort of change to get it back in alignment and make it a win-win there's a lot there could be it could be feedback on programming where Sometimes franchisees may, may, because of their own personal preferences, send feedback. You know, we, we do a lot of surveys with our franchisees and members. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we, we're doing too much of this. You know, you should do X, Y, and Z. And we have a system of, of monitoring in place. So we can actually go back with objective data and say, okay, let's sit down and have a conversation. This is not our opinion. It's actually objective data. Here's how many times we do the program that you're saying we do too much. Mm-hmm. We actually only do it X amount of times as a percentage of the overall programs that we offer. Or it might be as simple as, you know, we don't discount franchises. Um, mm. We do to multi-site owners, but we have, you know, really high-profile athletes, you know, 
Tim Payne, Nick Rewalt, George Bailey, Zach Merritt, Dyson Heppel as an example. The the, the Orbison brothers up in um, up in in New South Wales who are rugby league players. We, we don't discount. We we value our product and what we want every franchisee is to look each other in the eye. And if they're at conference or they become good friends through our network and are socialising, and, and you know maybe they're at at three in the morning with a few beers under their belt that. If someone says, oh, by the way, did you get a good deal when you signed your franchise? They're all actually going to say, well, actually, no, you know what? I, 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 got, I had to pay $50,000 for mine. Mm. I got a second one at forty-five. We don't do special deals. Mm. And that comes back to fairness. We don't want to be in a position where franchisees are leveraging those things against us because we're valuing one franchisee more than the other. Tim Payne, the captain of the Australian cricket team, didn't get a discount on the territories. We think that's really powerful. We think mm. it's very fair. So that, that's that's an absolute real-world example. And with our franchise contracts are really fair. We have favourable terms. If people are using reasonable endeavours to try and find a lease as an example, we don't charge them franchise fees. If they're not and they've, they've, act, they've shown over six or nine months and they're actively actually not, not seeking and, and seeking out uh, real estate agents and trying to look at properties that are suitable for the franchise, we have a conversation with them first. It's really important that you understand where they're coming from before you just say, well, at six months, you've got to start paying fees. So we're big into relationships and, and the first 100 franchisees for us, we're just, we were, you know, they've helped make our business. And that's the reality and we're forever grateful, but we invested heavily in those people. They all have my phone number. I, you know, they can call me. I speak to them regularly and we've tried to make, you know, be as transparent as we possibly can with franchisees have a very open, transparent line of communication and, again, always just have fairness at the core of what we do. And having those athletes as sort of franchisees, was that strategic? Like you thought this will help boost the brand? Was it just that was your network and that was your background and that's who you were talking to or was it a bit of both? No, it wasn't strategic at all, to be honest. We don't. We actually have no paid ambassadors in our network at all and there's a couple of reasons for that but I think with the athletes, the model that we do in body fit training resonates with them. Most athletes have been through strength and conditioning and periodized progressive training models. That's that's what athletes go through. And um, so the model resonated with them, the fact that we do high intensity and low intensity days, you know, we do we put in active recovery into our session. So that's what resonated with them. And and again, going back to the original four sites, being able to show real world financials to, to those people as well and say, well, these aren't just made up numbers. These are the averages of our first four sites or the first 50 sites. So to be able to show real world numbers rather than just make up a forecast and, and try and really sell it, excuse my friend, sell the shit out of it, <laughs> it's just it's really powerful. And again, it, that goes back to fairness. We don't want to be in a position where we're anyone can produce a forecast that looks fantastic. It's much more powerful if it's authentic and we, we try and be as authentic as we can. And with the athletes, we probably provide a little bit more support with their staff and their management because they're, they're, their IP is very valuable for mm. our business as well. There's no doubt about that. But we have the conversations so that you have no obligation to put anything on social media. You have no obligations to promote us just like any of our other franchisees don't. But if you do, fantastic. And hopefully you do because you believe in the brand, you mm. love what we're doing, and, you know, we're, we're genuine partners. So... Again, it just goes back to to fairness and out of our 300 franchisees we currently have, we can look them in the eye and so we treat them all exactly the same. We don't feel anyone's more important than the other. 
And what were some of those growth challenges as you go from 100 to 200 to 300? You know, did certain things get easier with scale? It's more proven, it's more systematized, you got more, more head office sort of support. And what were some of the, the unforeseen sort of obstacles as you really sort of hit that scale in that franchise model? I think financial resources. To give you an idea, originally we forecast out the business and we thought that we would break even as a, as a head office at around about 110 franchises. Mm-hmm. It's turned out to be more like 140, <laughs> and and, that, and that's open franchises, by the mm. way. And so, in early days, you you get to a point in every business has an inflection point. So you mm-hmm. grow and things are going well, and you get to a point where you're like, okay, financially we're going to be really tight, or we need to reinvest. And it, you come to points in decisions where you say, are we going to are we going to make those decisions, put on some staff earlier? Or we're going to hold out and just just get through this next period, and make sure we get there, and then um, you know hire hire early or hire late. Mm. Um, do we invest in technology? Do we not? I think that were the really challenging decisions. And and in fairness to the franchisees, it doesn't matter whether the the fourth, the fiftieth, the four hundredth franchisee. We have obligations as a franchisor, and it's and and honestly, being really honest, it's not their worry or responsibility. To take into consideration that well, we're growing and you know we're actually really tight on revenue and we're going to make some certain certain decisions around um, our own head office balance sheet, we have an obligation to service them and provide them with a certain level of support and that's mm-hmm. through our suppliers as well. So we had some real challenges early with technology and um, marketing and the expectations that franchisees had, and we don't have a marketing fund as an example. Our, our model is very community based, very mm-hmm. local, so. We believe that the franchisees are best spending that money themselves in their own local area, mm-hmm. but we we do provide support through digital agencies who know our brand well and can support them and help them in that. But certainly hiring, and we got to a point where Richard and I discussed that you know the good thing about a franchise model is we know that we've sold a certain amount of units, and we know that it takes on average about eight or nine months from signing a contract to opening. Mm-hmm. You know, we've actually got an opportunity to get ahead here, so we learned a few of those lessons early where it was just the two of us and we're just doing so much and we're working seven days a week to actually we should be hiring in advance mm. because we have we have the ability to really quite accurately forecast when these sites are going to open. So that was certainly a challenge early and, and one that we learned a lesson on this running on the smell of an oily rag and realizing that, well, actually, we have obligations as a franchisor. That's what people have signed up for and mm-hmm. it's not their fault and it's not their concern that, we're tight with cash flow and that we thought that our forecast was 110 sites to break even. It's now 145. We have to make it happen. And, and so that for us drove what we, you know, got us to refine our sales process. We, we got our, our regional franchise managers. We started to hire them well in advance to make sure that when our franchisees needed the support, they were actually in our system. They were familiar with our system. They'd been trained in all things body fit training and therefore could have a, a quicker, more significant impact with our franchisees when they're going through their pre-sale process and opening their studios. I think that was one of the big lessons we learned. It was a really good decision that we made to, to just take stock and go, right, maybe the best decision is to get ahead of everything rather than, mm. you know, you, you tend to hire late. You're like, you see this need in your business and you're scrambling. You're like, I've got to get this. You know, I've got to get a marketing person. Mm. And let, let's just take stock and we have a real opportunity with franchising to for, really accurately forecast our growth in terms of open studios. Let's get ahead of it. 
Mm. And, and so you grew up in Melbourne, obviously operating the business originally out of Melbourne. You spent a couple of years in the UK, seeing that the future of the industry in the 90s. You're in the US right now as we speak. What sort of trends do you see in entrepreneurship in Australia? What are a lot of Australian entrepreneurs doing well and, and where are they that perhaps, you know, um, could do even more? Gee, that's a really good question. Um, I mean, I think what we're seeing now, you know, around the world really is, and, and I'm, we're here now in um, Las Vegas at the moment at a conference with Exponential Fitness who have just bought our US business and our IP and Exponential are an aggregator of brands. So you're seeing that a lot across various industries where people might start out with one brand, they accumulate a second and then they, you know, they build an umbrella company um, that sits at the top and they aggregate various verticals within a marketplace. And I, I think we're seeing that happen globally across a few brands. Mm-hmm. The, the thing I think, I see in Australia is, and again, this is this is a hard lesson to learn, but we're seeing franchising as an example where people that come from Australia and have great businesses and they, and they want to say, oh, yeah, we've got one unit in Dubai and we've got one unit in you know, Hong Kong, and it's really hard to service that. And I think yeah. that's a big mistake for businesses rather than actually being a bit more patient. And as an entrepreneur, it's sometimes really hard and it sounds great, you know. You love to be at the a dinner with family or at a bar, mm-hmm. saying, "Oh yeah, we've got one in Dubai, we've got one." And it sounds fantastic, but it's actually a headache. Mm. It's a real headache, and it also the time and energy that you can put into developing regions and new markets, rather than solidifying a market where you exist already, where you're comfortable, you know the landscape, um, you know the local laws, as an example, the culture, etc. Mm-hmm. Really betting that down and solidifying your business, just taking a bit more time. So I think you know, entrepreneurs, that's something that I'd really suggest to people is don't don't get too obsessed with getting to market really quickly. People are seeing all these fantastic IPOs and see these amazing multiples and, you know, it, it can go one of two ways to be really frank. So again, going back to Des Morgan from Sportsco, just to take your time, don't rush this. You know, it's, it's really, really important. So I think the tech space is really booming. I love, I think COVID has been amazing for a range of businesses, certainly our industry, in terms of developing and, and advancing technology in our businesses. And now that we're going, gyms are reopening, we're going back to brick and mortar, I think there's a, it's a really awesome opportunity to integrate various verticals that you wouldn't have otherwise had in your business to provide a well, a more well-rounded experience. So I think you know, some companies in Australia, look at Canva or Atlassian, mm. as, you know, they're out of this world, what they're doing as Australian startups it's, and dominating the world. but you know, the old saying is, you know, every overnight success takes about 10 years. So <laughs> yeah. I just think that lesson, that can't be lost. Yes, yeah, so, so really going deep in a city or a country before you go broad, like you said, for, for sort of trying to expand into too many countries. And I imagine, especially with a physical business where there's bricks and mortar and people and leases versus, you know, Canva, obviously anyone in the world can use it. And I'm sure they have clients all over the world. Um, so for them to open in a new language, spin up a new website or a, you know, new customer support is a lot easier. But for you to sort of new laws, legislation, franchising laws, I imagine different per country, even per state in some places. Yeah, like I said, really having good foundation and not stretching yourself too soon across um, too many geographies. Otherwise, like you said, your franchisees won't have the experience that they think they're signing up for. Yeah, absolutely. And and an example is if, if we went to Japan, for example, Japan only does three-year leases on properties. So mm-hmm. that changes your franchise agreement because you're trying to align your agreement to your, to your lease of your property. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, we're now dealing with different sets of rules and parameters in a country that is foreign to us, mm-hmm. has different sets of rules. 
therefore now we now we've got two different things to juggle so our, our philosophy was we'll bed down and consolidate where we are make sure our franchisees are really successful you know close to home but move into newer geographies that are very similar to our culture our laws etc before we start going out into other regions and that again everyone's different everyone there's, there's lots of different businesses that might be different in technology and software but you know the, the language barriers, mm. the rewriting of a franchise agreement in another language and just dealing with lawyers in another country is costly because that's going through our lawyers. We've got a ter- interpreters involved. Mm. It's, a, it's a cost that you don't even think of in your business because you think you've got your franchise agreements better down in, say, Australia or New Zealand, and it's significantly different to Dubai, mm. which is significantly different to Japan. And, <laughs> you know, we're governed by the, Australia, the, council, the Franchise Council of Australia and some countries don't have any governance whatsoever and mm. so again you've got to be very careful on what you say and what you don't say and what you represent so i don't want to become a, a franchise law expert in seven countries <laughs> when i haven't really when i haven't bettered down australia mm. as an example mm. and either do our sales guys so i think that yeah, that that's really important is don't rush you like really get your model right really make sure you've got you know your numbers right you're, mm-hmm. you're financially you're right your back end's right before you start to, to really grow and spread yourself, potentially spread yourself thin. Yeah, and so reflecting back on this journey, again, you've gone across industry, you've done the corporate, you, you've worked abroad, you know, and now you've started your own business and then evolved into sort of a, a very successful franchise business. What advice would you give your sort of 18 to 20-year-old self? You know, like you said, you didn't want to study, you, you know, you had an apprenticeship just because, you know, family was in it, but you didn't really like it. But then, you know, you had other stuff going on, like looking back with what you know now and you had, you know, bigger dreams of running your own thing, but no one sort of believed in you. What would you sort of tell that young version of yourself? I think a couple of things. One is, one is follow your passions, like follow your, your instincts. Uh, when I look back and I've talked a little bit about the journey, I think I knew that I early days that I, I wanted to work for myself and I wanted to create something. I wasn't sure what that was, by the way. And I think actually just you don't have to do anything about it, but recognize it. I probably just, I, I knew it, but I didn't, I didn't give it the time and attention that it probably deserved. I was very much... No, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do my apprenticeship and I'm going to be a carpenter and I'll hopefully I'll run a carpentry construction business. And you know, I think just actually recognize what you're feeling and, and what what really makes you excited and what puts that fire in your belly. And the other thing is, I mentioned earlier, I really, I definitely was disadvantaged by not asking more questions and maybe seeking some mentors. Mm. I think now with technology and you know LinkedIn and social media, there's so many more opportunities to connect with people. I mean, I'm talking about a time when I was starting this journey and Google wasn't even invented. So <laughs> um, it was a different time, but definitely, you know, reach out because I, I could have 20 people come to me and, and ask for advice or to maybe mentor them. And I may only resonate with two or three. Mm. And so just because you're not getting something from someone or someone might have a really strong opinion about your business. And to be honest, I, I, I would never have done honestly what i'm doing right now if i hadn't known the challenges and um some of the headaches and the pain points you'd get so there's a large amount of naivety that goes into being an entrepreneur and if i knew the numbers and what i would spend and and so on and so forth it would have been almost too big of a mountain to climb so don't get hung up too much on you know what the end result is Mm -hmm. follow your passion enjoy the journey and i think that's really important I, i talked about my apprenticeship and i was already focused on the end Mm. I needed I needed to actually enjoy the process and, and the journey and 
really enjoy the journey. If you're doing something you're passionate about and you're driven, the journey is just so, so important. As I'm here in Las Vegas at a conference and it's been fantastic to be with my business partners and actually sit down and and just actually celebrate some of the successes because we don't Mm. do it enough. So follow your passion. I'm someone who just believes two things, work really hard. I just don't think much replaces work hard. It's the old Mm -hmm. saying that entrepreneurs work 80 hours a week so they don't have to work 40. (laughs) But if you work hard and over time through experience and and getting advice and having mentors, you learn to work smart. I I just don't think there's anything that competes with working hard and working smart and you'll be successful and be open to learn, open to be challenged. It is difficult sometimes being challenged with as an entrepreneur that you've got such a strong view or such a strong path that you want to go down. And you may just need to take a right-hand turn that you may not have seen and, and just be open to those things because sometimes as entrepreneurs, you can have the blinkers on a little bit. Yeah, and so it sort of relates back to fitness as well, right? Follow the process, work hard, get the right advice, the right support. So a very direct sort of parallel with you know getting results. Don't obsess about the losing 20 kilos. Think about, yeah, the process, the steps and the journey and the, the guidance the sort of uh, and the hard work that, that sort of makes it all happen. And so just sort of to finish up, like you're in the US now, you've mentioned you've sort of um, signed a deal with a, a US company. What's the next five or 10 years like for, for body fit training? I mean, US expansion, other like so that sort of house of brands model, um, uh, technology and data driven sort of fitness. What's the, the future path and vision? Yeah, look, we're definitely big on technology. So the exciting opportunity for us selling our US business to exponential fitness is you know, they're, they're, they're on the NASDAQ, they're a publicly listed company, they're huge in technology. So we're excited to be able to leverage that IP um, and that partnership. We run the master franchise rights around the world outside of the US and Canada. So to be able to leverage the technology and the know-how and the learning of a company that has nine other brands, nearly 2,000 open studios across America, it's just been a wonderful opportunity for us for the past few days in this conference. But going forward, is something that we're really excited to be able to bring that to our franchisees in Australia and Singapore and New Zealand and, and, and beyond. So that's really exciting. You know, connected fitness is massive now. So being able to take the, the in-studio experience, but also connect it to, to people's outside fitness pursuits as well and offer them not just body fit training, you know, they might connect to other brands under the exponential umbrella, you know, whether it's Rumble or um, Stride or Stretch Lab, et cetera. So there's some really exciting opportunities to have that full connected fitness experience through leveraging digital technology. We're really looking forward to that. You know, we're evolving our, our our digital platform in terms of how we deliver programs in studio to our members and our franchisees. Again, just leveraging off exponential fitness and their experience with how they do that. They, they generate something like $450 million off their digital platform. So mm-hmm. for us, as driving secondary revenue through digital platforms for our franchisees as a value add is something we're excited to bring in the next few years um, to the brand. We're really excited to just to get body fit training into more regions. So now that we've got Australia really consolidated, we feel like we're going to sell sell out New Zealand by the end of next year and Singapore as well. And that just Singapore provides a fantastic platform for us to launch into other Asian countries. So that's exciting. And, and you know, what I was saying earlier about going into new regions that are very foreign to us, that's actually the next challenge for us is mm. to now that we've consolidated some regions um, in Asia Pacific that we do know well and that are familiar with us, it's it's now it's the challenge of stepping up into some foreign foreign regions and mm. um, regions that speak foreign languages that aren't, we aren't familiar with and culturally are different and learning, really learning and being open to learning 
and maybe you know the business I'm sure will pivot at some stage and we've always said that we wanted a model we've created a space in terms of the actual exercise space we have and the equipment that we've used to be open to potential change and make sure that we're we're staying true to what we are as body fit training but we're staying current and and moving with some of the trends in the industry so yeah the, the next few years is exciting we've got 150 studios to open in 2022 through Australia Singapore and New Zealand um, which is great We've had an amazing reception here in in Exponential with launching BodyFit Training to the Exponential brand and, and their franchisees across America. So we're really excited to see what a real big powerhouse like Exponential Fitness is, what they can do with BodyFit Training. And that helps everyone, right? If they can sell more franchises and they will sell more franchises mm. in the US than we would have been able to, that helps them, but it also really helps us. You know, More exposure, more social media, more eyes on the brand. I mean, social media is so powerful. We've grown in Singapore really organically through social media. We actually haven't targeted that region or spent any money driving leads. It's been purely through social media, Instagram and Facebook. So yeah, more sites through through America in the next 24 months is going to be super, super exciting for our brand globally. Yeah. And that recurring theme of you hit a bottleneck, a ceiling, you've got to bring in the right partner, whether it's a business partner in this term, like a sort of a geographic um, acquisition sort of partner, a licensing partner. But yeah, again, getting to a certain point and then being humble enough and self-aware to say, hey, I need a partner. I can't just keep doing what I'm doing or figure it all out myself. I've got to bring in extra help and, and keep sort of growing. And one final thing, I saw an article saying you, you trained Princess Diana at one point. Is that right? And, and what's the quick sort of backstory yes. behind that? Yeah, I did. As I said, I um, I was working at a pub for a while in London. I eventually um, worked out that I could make more money doing personal training. So <laughs> I um, applied for a few jobs and initially got a job working as a just a trainer working some busy shifts for a gym and I had nothing else to do to be quite honest because I gave up the pub work and um, <laughs> so I was always I was always hanging around the gym and I'd say to the gym owner you know can I do sales can I clean can I you know, is there any other work you can give me and and again that just reinforced that work ethic that I was always available to offer something I had nothing else to do with my time mm. so I may as well have been, been in the gym and so they started to refer clients to me and, and um, some significant sort of corporate clients and business people and I was able to look after those people and get good results. They trusted me and that then led to about three months in, the, the owner saying, look, you've got some pretty high-profile business people. Uh, we're hearing really good things. You probably don't know, but Princess Diana trains at the gym and she trains with her trainer before opening hours. Mm-hmm. And we would like you to bring some of your clients in so that she has some people to speak to in the gym. And she's not just in a big open gym on her own um, with her trainer. I did that for about 12 months. So I'd go in with one or two specific clients who all had to get, you know, past security checks, et cetera. And so over 12 months, we got to know each other. She then parted away with her trainer and asked Ian, the owner of the gym, and said she asked Ian to put a list of the five best trainers that he thought. I was 21, 22, and, or 22, I think I was, and somewhat in the right place at the right time. But again, I think it just goes back to that opportunity that I saw in London that if you work hard and you've got good values uh, and, you, you know, you're aligned with the people that you're working with, that anything's possible. To be honest, it's still a little bit surprising to me that it happened in my life. But um, yeah, it's it's certainly something I look back on fondly. Yeah, excellent. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Karen. Any final words to, to leave the audience with? No, thank you, Derek. I really appreciate your time. And yeah, if any, any listeners and entrepreneurs are out there, um, get on the bodyfittraining.com website. And uh, yeah, we'd love to chat to you about maybe having a franchise or, or 10. Excellent. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to the Future of Australia podcast. If you liked the episode, please subscribe and leave a review in iTunes. 
To learn more about the Future of Australia project, check out futureofaustralia.com. To reach out to Derek directly, you can email derek at futureofaustralia.com. That's D-E-R-E-K at futureofaustralia.com.